So we continue our series uh, through our doctrinal statement, which we have titled, This We Believe. Uh, we've looked at a number of things so far. We've looked at who God is. We've looked at how we received God's word. What is God's word? We've looked at who is God, who is God the Father. We've looked at who is God the Son. We've looked at who is God the Holy Spirit. Um, and then in the last few weeks, we've looked at our salvation and what God has accomplished for each one of us who has placed our trust in him in regards to our salvation. That brings us today to what we call as ecclesiology or the body of Christ. You know, in the post-COVID world of business, it's not easy to start a business and to keep it running. For those of you who are involved in it, know this, especially considering the pandemic that impacted nearly uh, every industry that is out there. According to the U.S. Small Business Administration, SBA, around 66% of all new businesses make it to the two-year mark. And only half of all companies survive past five years. The early years of any newly started business are unpredictable at best, and even the one that makes the right moves ends up failing in the environment that we are in. And in such an environment, it's interesting to note that there are some companies, some businesses, that have survived not just for five years, 10 years, 50 or 100 years, but more than 300 years. Uh, one such company is Caswell Massey. Dr. William Hunter is credited with starting this perfume and soap company uh, as a way to sell medicines and, and drugs. And it started in Newport, Rhode Island in 1752. According to Caswell Massey's website, Hunter served his distinguished clientele living in the nearby cottages, supplying them regularly with medicinals, perfumes, and personal care products. Uh, this company is known for its hallmark scent uh, by the brand number six. Perhaps those of you who are involved in that world of perfumes know this already. It's the longest continuously manufactured American fragrance. A story is told of George Washington giving this bottle, uh, the number six cologne, to Marquis de Lafayette, uh, the French gentleman who was... Uh, very key in both the American and the French Revolution. Also, Lewis and Clark took this product on their cross-country trek uh, is a story that is highlighted by this company. Uh, today, this company is owned by private investors uh, and is based in New Jersey. And the company doesn't have any retail stores, and so it sells all its products online and through select third-party retailers. More than 300 years in existence. It's remarkable that we have a business organization in the current environment that has lasted for more than 300 years. And while we can appreciate companies and institutions that have survived for long, there is only one institution that our Lord Jesus Christ said that he will build and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And that institution is the church. You know, we live in the part of the country that is called as the Bible Belt. In fact, some call Dallas-Fort Worth the buckle of that belt. According to most conservative estimates, we have more than 2,700 churches in the metroplex. 
And yet, if truth be told, it's difficult and frankly challenging to find a solid Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church in our area. Oh, there are, but not as much as we should have. Uh, a place where God's word is taught, a place where God's word, both written and living, is taken seriously, oh, those places are few. Why is that the case? Well, there are many reasons, but one that is at the core is that there is a lack of understanding and applying the scriptures. And so our study of the church comes at a good time. We're going to look at a number of things related to the church. I've titled our lesson, The Body of Christ, and we're going to look at it in two parts. So Lord willing, if we have our next part, it'll be next Wednesday, and we'll look at some of the things there. But here's what I have in mind as far as an outline is concerned for the next two weeks. What is a church? We look at the meaning of the word church and then some metaphors that are commonly associated with that word. And we look at the origins of the church and the objectives of the church today. And then, Lord willing, we'll look at the last three next week when we, when we meet. So let's begin by asking and answering the question, what is a church? What is a church? The English word church actually comes from the late Greek word kyriakon, which itself comes from the word that has its basis for the same word as Lord. You can hear the word kurios in there. And so the word church, the English word church, comes from that late Greek word kyriakon. The word essentially means belonging to the Lord, someone, belonging, someone who belongs to the Lord. But the Greek word that is used for church in the New Testament is the, is the word ekklesia, ek meaning out, and kaleo meaning to call or to summon. Uh, doesn't mean the called out or separated ones, it rather means an assembly that is summoned or called together. An assembly that is summoned or called together. That's what that word means. It is from this word uh, that we get the word ecclesiology, which is the study of the doctrine of the church. It's used differently in the Old and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, uh, the Hebrew word which is translated as assembly is the word kahal, and it also means gathering of the people. It's, uh, it's not necessarily used the same way as it is used in the New Testament. Sometimes the gathering of angels is called kahal. Sometimes it is used in reference to the nations, uh, such as in Genesis 28 and verse 3. It's also used in reference to Israel as a nation. At the core of that word is, the meaning is assembling together. Then in the New Testament, there's a number of times that this particular word, ecclesia, is used. Not always does it mean church the way that we use it to mean church. Sometimes it's just a group of people that have come together are called, uh, is called ecclesia. Sometimes the political assembly, such as in Acts 19, is called ecclesia as well. So it's an assembling of people together. It's, of course, used for churches, local churches, and a group of churches. But that is the primary meaning of that word. Also, it's used in two ways uh, when we mean the church. We mean two things, or we could mean one of those two things. One could be a local church, a local assembly or assemblies, who all profess faith in Christ 
of the scripture. And so Countryside Bible Church would be a local representation of what a church is. It's a visible church. Then there is the universal or invisible church. Uh, these are all believers who are professing everywhere throughout the world. This is the whole body of Christ's redeemed. For those of you who have traveled outside of the country of Texas and have been to other countries, uh, you wonder, you shouldn't really wonder, and I'm sure you don't wonder, how easily you can connect and relate to believers from rest of the world. And the reason you can do that is because they too are a part of the universal or the invisible church just like you are. And the church then is those who are called together or assembled together. It's an assembly, it's a group of men and women who are believers. And as you read the scriptures, there are different ways in which the church is described. There are different metaphors that are used for the word church. There are different objects to which it is compared. Uh, let's quickly look at the different metaphors that are used when it comes to the church. What is a metaphor? For those of you who did not pay attention in your grammar classes, it's essentially different from simile. Uh, a simile is, you know, when the writer says, this is like this, or this is like that, that's essentially a simile. But a metaphor is, it uses the word to be. So essentially, it's a comparison where one thing acts or represents the thing that you're describing. And so as we go through it, you will, you will recognize what I'm saying. So there's at least five that I can think of as I think of the church. The first one is the body. Uh, Romans 12, four to five, Paul writes, for just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members, of, members one of another. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12, Paul writes, for even as the body is one, yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. The church, then, is made up of different members uh, that comprise or comprise the one body of Christ. In the classic passage, which is essentially read at many of the weddings, Ephesians 5.23, Paul writes, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. The body. But why the body? You know, the church as a body portrays for us, a unity, unity in diversity. Uh, the different roles that each part of the body has uh, to perform, uh, to make sure that the body functions in a healthy way. You know, your shoulder performs a different function than your feet would, and so on and so forth. There is interdependence. You've got to depend on the other members of the body. But one body also projects one objective. Uh, and finally, it shows the key role and position of the head of the church. If we are the body, then the head of this body is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in those ways, we have this first metaphor, the, the body. Secondly, the bride. Now, the church is the bride of Christ. 
In Ephesians 5, verse 31 and 32, Paul writes, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, he says, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. In Revelation 21, verse 9, John writes, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. You know, some of us are getting ready to be a bride soon, so we can relate to this more in, 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 in a number of ways, but even generally, the metaphor portrays a, a deep and an intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, that is, between the Lord Jesus Christ and the church. And it's, what is it? The church is the bride, and the Lord Jesus Christ is the bridegroom. Uh, this particular relationship culminates in what the Bible calls as the marriage of the Lamb, mentioned in Revelation 19. And so it's a special relationship. There is, uh, there is closeness. There is a, a deep connection that is so intimate that can be only expressed in the relationship that a bride shares with her bridegroom. Body, bride. Uh, thirdly, the church is also called the family of God. You know, remember that incident in Matthew 12 where someone is standing outside the door. They are trying to approach Jesus and one of them says, Jesus, your mother and your brother and your sister is here. And then in verse 49 it says, and stretching out his hand, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, behold my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven, he is my mother, my brother, my sister and mother. Church then is described as a family. You know, family as an institution is one of the oldest institutions in the world, one that was created in the Garden of Eden. Overall, in a normal family, the closest relationships are the ones, um, a family enjoys the closest of relationships, right? At least we're supposed to. Uh, in Ephesians 2.19, Paul writes, so then you're no longer strangers and aliens. That is who we were before we became believers, but you are fellow citizens with saints and are of God's household. If you are a follower of Christ, you are a part of the body of Christ, you are, a, you are the bride, you are a part of the family of God. Now, there is a sense of belonging in a family. There are things that we share in the family that we don't share outside the family. There, are, there is the idea of love and care and, and support in a family that we find in this metaphor. So much so that Paul, when he writes to Galatians, in Galatians 6.10, he says, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Body, bride, family. We also compare to a building or God's household. In 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, Paul writes, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. Now, Paul clearly puts forth here the reason for why he's writing 1 Timothy, the letter to Pastor Timothy. And he says, I'm writing this to you so that you ought to know how one ought to conduct himself or herself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of truth. 
as you look at a building, in a building, as you look at a building, there is a foundation and there's a structure that that foundation supports. Our Lord and his work on the cross is frequently described as that foundation. In 1 Corinthians 3.11, Paul writes, For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. He's not only described as a foundation, in other places such as Ephesians 2.20, Jesus Christ is also described as the cornerstone. Uh, it is, used to be that stone that determines the rest of the structure of the building and in many cases also held the entire structure together. A building, as you look at a building, signifies many things. Just like a good, good building has order and structure, a church has order and structure as well. Just like a good, good building has different rooms, and each room has a different purpose, the members of a church have different roles that they perform. A building also signifies, apart from those things, stability and endurance. In 1 Peter 2, 5, Peter the Apostle Peter, he writes, you also as living stones are being built up as spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We're described as a building. A building. And then finally, described also as a flock. Now this is something that would be very relatable to the first century believers in Israel but even for us today, as we think of what it conveys, uh, this is really a beautiful and a tender image that shows the relationship between the believers and the Lord Jesus Christ. In John 10, 16, the Lord says, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Paul, as he comes to the end of his ministry, uh, visits with the elders of Ephesus, and he says this to them as he warns them. He says, be on, your, be on guard for yourself and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. You're a part of of the flock and what is the price that God has paid for you? He sent his own son and he shed his own blood for you and for me. How trivial then to just show up at church on Sundays and then just rush out of there as soon as the service is over. Peter in writing his first epistle, he says, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge. He's talking to the elders. He says, but proving to be examples to the flock, to the flock. The church then is compared to a body. It's compared to a bride, compared to a family, compared to a building, and finally, it's compared to a flock. You know, all of these metaphors, it's, it, these are symbols, these are representations, they help us understand, get a deeper understanding of what the body of Christ is. It's what the church of Christ is. Now, before we leave this section, I want to leave you with one warning. Take the implications only as far as the biblical authors allow us to go. Don't spend your time thinking about who is that pinky in the church you know, or what, is the, what does the hair signify? 
Uh, no, the Bible doesn't spend time on that. I think you want to understand why were those metaphors given. Take the lessons that you can get from those metaphors and move on. Right? You don't want to extrapolate more than what the biblical text gives you. The metaphors then point us to ways in which the church is. First of all, then, the meaning and metaphors of the church, the word church itself, but that brings us to the origins of the church. In a 1975 Peanuts strip comic, uh, that is, Charlie Brown asks his sister Sally what she's writing about, and she responds, I'm writing about church history. And then she goes on to say, when writing about church history, we have to go back to the very beginning and then she says, our pastor was born in 1930. Every time I've read that, it just brought a smile to my face. But sadly, that's how many think of the origin of the church. When was their pastor born? Or when their particular local church began operations? You know, not only is Sally confused about the origins of the church, there are many living in the real world who are as confused as well. So what can we say about the origins of the church? Uh, there's been a lot of debate on this. There are at least five views on the origin of the church. You probably have heard of these, or perhaps this is the first time you're hearing them. I quickly run through them and then focus on the one I think is what the Bible teaches. First of all, there's this view that Adam, uh, that, that says that the church began with Adam. Adam, as you know, is the first man. And based on the promise in Genesis chapter 3 after sin entered the world uh, uh, about the seed of the woman, it is considered by this group that Adam believed that promise. And because he believed that promise, the church began with him. Secondly, there's this uh, group that believes that it began actually with Abraham. This is our second view. It says the church did not begin with Adam, but with Abraham, the very father of the nation, uh, this, they believe, is based on the covenant that God made with Abraham. Remember, we've been through those chapters in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 15. And some believe that it started with Abraham. There are others who believe that the church started with Jesus Christ. Uh, this is the third view. And this one says that the church began at the first advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, within this particular view, there are four other views. And I'm not going to go through each one of them in detail, but helpful to understand how people think. Um, to kind of point out when exactly the church began as we think of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some say that it began when the 12 disciples were called and appointed. Others say it began when Peter confessed Jesus as Christ. Remember that incident in Matthew 16? And our Lord responded with the statement that he will build the church. That's when he built the church. Then there are others who say, no, it's not that. It's the Last Supper when the church was started. While still others say when the apostles came together, that's when the church began. There's a fourth view that says uh, the church really began with the ministry of Paul. After all, I mean, Paul is credited with writing more than 12, at least 13 letters, um, epistles, and most of them are focused not on individuals, but are written to churches. So who better than Paul uh, to talk more about this? And perhaps it was then that the church began. And then finally uh, is the view that the church began at the Pentecost. 
this is the day, Pentecost, meaning 50th day after the Passover, the event that is recorded for us in Acts 2. Now, I'm not going to refute all of the wrong views. I'm just going to give us reasons for why we believe uh, the fifth view is correct. Uh, as you know, if you've read the booklet that you have with you at Countryside Bible Church, we stand in a long line of faithful interpreters of the Word of God. We believe that the Bible teaches that the church did begin at Pentecost. I want to share with you some reasons, two larger reasons, and then you can pick from it and go ahead and, and, and study it during your free time during this week. But why do we believe that the church began at Pentecost? Essentially, there are two reasons. First of all, I want to look at the testimony of our Lord. And it's here that we get into the scripture in more detail. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 16. We're in that section where it talks about Peter's confession. You know, our Lord is asking his disciples as they are in the district of Caesarea Philippi who the Son of Man is. And the disciples give him some answers. And then he turns around and says to them, he asks them, but who do you say, verse 15, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, or hell, will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven." I want to make two observations with you as you look at this text. Notice the tense of the verb in verse 18. He says that our Lord says, I will build my church. Uh, that is to say that the church was not yet built when Jesus spoke those words. Uh, therefore, he talks about it in a future tense. I will build my church. The church was not there yet. But secondly, those who believe that Israel is the Old Testament church, this verse actually tells us that the church is not the same as Israel. It is not the same as Israel because Israel as a nation already existed. But here our Lord is saying the church is not yet built. I will build my church. And so in the testimony of our Lord Jesus Christ, we can say that the church was yet to build. But we have not yet constructed a case for why we think it's at the Pentecost. So here we want to go through a number of verses. So turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians, as we know, is a letter that Paul wrote. I'm going to read from verse 7. Paul writes, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this verse tells us that Jesus gave gifts to men at his ascension, meaning at least until his ascension, the church was not yet established. Well, why do we say that? Go down a couple more verses to verse 11. Notice what it says. 
And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Uh, Here we are told in these two verses the purpose of the gifts. They were given for the equipping of the saints to the building up of the body of Christ. Uh, That building up of the body of Christ is to be used in the context of the church. But what is that event that makes them a part of the body of Christ? We are not told that here. And so turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Notice what Paul writes there. In chapter 12, verse 13, we are told how the church came to be. Let me read from verse 12. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. Notice verse 13. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. In other words, the church was established after these believers were baptized in the spirit. So it is the baptism of the spirit that adds them to the body of Christ, the church. Now if this is so important, did the Lord Jesus Christ mention about this event somewhere? Well, yes, he did. Go back to Acts, the book of Acts, and turn with me to chapter 1. Remember, we are thinking of the baptism uh, of the believers by the Spirit, which is essentially them being added to the body, which is the church. Did Jesus talk about this? Notice verse 5. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. That event had not yet happened, but it was going to happen in a few days. You will be baptized. So it's not an event that has taken place yet. But when does that event take place? It it is in the next chapter, Acts chapter 2. Notice verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, They were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues, that is, languages, as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now you might say, well... It is describing something that the Holy Spirit did. But how do we know that this is talking about baptism with the Spirit? I'm glad you are thinking in that direction. So turn with me a few chapters to Acts 11. And I promise you, we're coming to the end of turning the pages here. But you will probably not forget as we kind of walk through how this is done. Notice, in chapter 11, now remember, until chapter Nine, only those who came from a Jewish background were becoming believers. Chapter 10 onwards, we are now told that some Gentiles were becoming believers. And so, notice what Peter says here. Peter reports this 
uh, involvement of his to the church at Jerusalem. Notice in verse 15, as he talks to the elders, as he shares his experience of what happened, he says, and as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how you used to say, remember Acts 1.5, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Clearly, Peter is making the connection that what happened to them in Acts chapter 2 was a baptism with the Spirit. That's why we believe that the church began in Acts 2 at Pentecost. That is 50 days after the Passover took place. In fact, many theologians call the age that we are living in as the church age. The origins of the church. The testimony of our Lord Jesus Christ and the testimony of the scriptures. And we've looked at what the word itself means. We've looked at the origin of the church. Let's quickly now, thirdly and finally, look at the objectives of the church. What is the purpose, the goal of a church? For some churches, they exist for the unchurched. That is those people who do not go to a church or used to go to a church, but now they don't. Uh, for others, the church exists only for its members, those who are committed members of that church. And so visitors are not easily welcomed in such churches. Uh, for some churches, it's a wonderful platform for political ideologies to be made known uh, and to be made public. And so as we think of the myriad of ways that are out there of what the objectives of a church are, how do we know what the objectives of a church are? And like we always do, we want to know what the Bible says the objectives of a church are. There are three that, that we will talk about as we look through the objectives of the church, each representing a particular direction. So let's start with the upward direction because I think that dictates the next two directions as well. There is an upward direction when, when it comes to an objective and it is to glorify and worship God. A church exists to glorify and worship God. Romans chapter 15, verse 5 and 6, Paul, as he comes almost to the end of his letter to the Romans, he says, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another, one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We exist to glorify and worship God. We exist to make much of him. We exist not to elevate man or to elevate man's philosophy or to elevate man's missions or organizations, but we exist to exult in and elevate our great God. Isn't it Paul who writes in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. We worship God. We exalt him. We praise him. Why do we do that? Because he's worthy to be worshipped. The psalmist writes in Psalm 71, 19, For your righteousness, O God, reaches to the heavens. You have done great things, O God. Who is like you? Answer, no one. No one. Psalm 145, 3, Great is the Lord, and greatly or highly to be praised 
and his greatness is unsearchable. We don't come together on the Lord's day just to learn how to do life. Uh, we don't come together to get charged up because we are you know, losing our charge throughout the week and so we come on Sundays to get charged up. You know, helpful as those things may be, no, we come together to worship and glorify our great God. And that is why he saved us, says Paul. In Ephesians 1, 11 and 12, Paul writes, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. How do we make much of God? Well, we do that by reading his word. Uh, we do that by praying his word. We do that by singing his word. We do that by preaching his word. That's how we make much of God. A church exists then to worship and glorify God. You know, some of you will be here with us for a few days, perhaps a few months, perhaps even for a few years, and then you will move away from here as the Lord takes you to different places. What a great framework to have as you consider different churches. Does this church have a high view of God? Does it make much of God or does it make much of man's abilities to communicate his word? A church exists then to worship and glorify God. The next two, I would say, flow out of this first one. Because we seek to glorify God, we will seek to, secondly, minister to each other as I think of this as an inward directions. As some have called this for the edification of believers, which would also be right. A church exists so that its members minister to each other. Uh, this is a verse that we read earlier. And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. What a wonderful verse to, to memorize. I think that's in your booklet as well for you to be encouraged to memorize it. To equip the body of believers, to equip the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. How do we do that? Well, we do that in a few ways. First of all, understanding your own roles and then fulfilling those roles. We already looked at the fact that we are the body and Christ is the head. He is the head of the church. He is the one who appoints leaders and then the leaders equip the members and the members then accomplish the service. If I, as a leader, if I do everything, not only would I be disobeying God's word, but I'm also robbing you of the opportunity to serve the body of Christ, and I'm also hindering you from exercising your gifts. You know, as a leader, my role is to exercise my gifts, and as I do that, it is also to equip you for the work of service so that the body of Christ would continue to function the way that it was supposed to function. We not only understand our roles and fulfill our roles, but we also be the body by mutually caring for one another. You know, Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, 24, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and to good deeds. We are to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. That means we are to care for one another. We are to care for those who are vulnerable amongst us, the widows, the orphans, the sick, and the strangers, the 
poor and those who are in prisons. Not only do we do that, we have to create an environment where we can practice the one another's that are found all over the New Testament. Now, for some of you, you may have heard that word before, but never really thought about it. There are at least 100 times when the phrase one another is used in the New Testament. Out of those 100 times, about 59 times it's used as a command. Paul and others are instructing God's people to do something. Uh, for example, there is the command to love one another. Uh, there's a command to be devoted to one another. Uh, there's a command to be honoring one another, to live in harmony with one another, build up one another, admonish one another, serve one another, bear one another's burdens, forgive one another, be patient with one another, submit to one another, comfort one another, encourage one another, look to the interests of one another, show hospitality to one another, pray for one another, confess your faults to one another. Now how can we do that? If we just come right before the service begins on Sunday morning, or maybe come half an hour after the service begins, and then quickly leave after the service gets over. Answer, we cannot do that. When we do what we are called to do as a body of believers, Paul says we will attain to the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man. When you're involved in each other's lives, when you don't hesitate in admonishing one another, you're doing the right thing. Uh, you're showing that the church also has an inward direction that it needs to look at and consider. You're ministering to one another. A church exists then to worship and glorify God. A church finally exists to Thirdly, in an outward direction to evangelize and display mercy. To evangelize and display mercy. You and I are to be involved in sharing the good news of the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I still remember, I've been to a number of seminaries, taken a number of different classes. There was this particular institution, which I'll not name, uh, but there was a professor who was teaching us on evangelism. And so one of the students who was fairly new, I think, to the faith, he asked the professor, when was the last time you shared the gospel with someone? Here's someone who is teaching a class on evangelism, and he had a hard time remembering when was the last time he shared the gospel with someone. Now, if that is the case with someone who is teaching as a professional, then you can imagine, I'm told that 95% of regular churchgoers never share the gospel with anyone. What does Peter write in 1 Peter 2.9? He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You and I, as followers of Christ, are called to proclaim the excellencies of our great God. In Acts 1.8, our Lord says to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Remember Acts 2. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, 
and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Uh, this is what the church has always done. In fact, from the beginning, that's something that the church has done. It's a command from our Lord. In fact, when Paul, remember Saul, who was persecuting the church, uh, this Pharisee, he, uh, when he was doing that, the, the, the individuals were being scattered. And in Acts 8, verse 4, it says, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. So persecution is not always bad. In fact, the way it's portrayed in the scriptures tells us some of the good things that came out of persecution. As they scattered, they went about telling about the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only that, as I uh, referenced earlier, it's a direct command from our Lord, Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. And tell you that there are a number of nations right here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. I've been told about my own uh, cultural background, there's about 200,000 Indians living in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. There are others from other countries that are, that are living here as refugees. It's great to get to know each other in the boundaries that we have set here, but at the same time, let me encourage you to go beyond those boundaries as you interact with people. Perhaps your neighbor, uh, perhaps your colleague at work, uh, perhaps a family member. But closely, that is evangelism, but closely associated with evangelism is also the acts of mercy. That is, we are to be concerned about and do something about the poor and weak that are with us. Uh, Matthew chapter 6 was to remember uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Our Lord would say, so when you give to the poor, not, not if you give to the poor, when you give to the poor. Paul quotes Old Testament in Romans 12, 20. He says, but if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. And then in the Olivet Discourse, remember Matthew 24 and 25, our Lord would say, when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Who are these people? These are people all around us who need, who are in desperate need, who need to see us acting out in mercy towards them. There is an upward direction that is to glorify and worship God. There is an inward direction that is to minister to each other. There is an outward direction to evangelize and display mercy towards others. Now you tell me, looking at these three, where does that individual focus come from? Answer, nowhere. It's so other-focused, isn't it? We come here together to worship and glorify our great God. We are focused in building others up, and then we go out and share about the Lord Jesus Christ. We have our second lesson planned next week, but I do want us to go with a few applications. Let me ask you, as I've asked myself looking at these texts, do you, do I have a high view of the church? Do you view and value the church as our Lord Jesus Christ valued the church? Or you might ask, how much did he value the church? 
Ephesians 5 tells us he loved the church and gave himself up for her. Do you value the church? Do you have a high view of the church? Or do you just play church? Secondly, are you involved in fulfilling the objectives of the church? You are the church, not the building, but the people. Are you here in time so that you can worship our God with fellow believers on the Lord's day? Or are you late on Saturdays and then just bring crumbs to the worship on Sunday morning? Are you looking out for each other? Are you caring for others when you hear of an opportunity? Are you helping them? If God has given you a place that you can host, are you hosting? Are you loving on the body of believers? Are you involved in sharing the gospel and making disciples? Or are you consumed with yourself? And then thirdly and finally, are you praying for the church? When a need is expressed, perhaps in your group me, small groups for a certain prayer request, are you praying consistently and regularly for your brother, your sister in Christ? When we do those things, it's responding rightly to what you've heard tonight. Let me close our time in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this evening. Thank you for your love and care for us uh, so clearly displayed in you sending your son for us. Thank you for his life, his perfect life. Uh, Thank you for his death that he died on our behalf. And not only that, he rose again on the third day. He's seated at your right hand, but he has not left us as orphans. He has given us his Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is our comforter. He is our helper. He is our guide. He is our counselor. And so, Lord, everything that we have thought about and talked about tonight is not something that we do in our own strength. Oh, how miserably we will fail if we do that. No, we do it in the strength that you give us. And so, Lord, I pray for some here tonight who recognize that they have not taken the church as seriously as they should, as your word commands us, we should. So Lord, help them to come to you to seek help, to seek your forgiveness. And we know that you are a just and a faithful God, that you will forgive them and that you will cleanse them from all all unrighteousness. And Lord, that you would continue to build them up, that you will not give up on them. Perhaps there are some here who don't make any connection with what was being said. Uh, Perhaps they are not a part of the body of Christ. Or remind them that today is the day of salvation. They would turn to you and call out to you and repent and believe in the only way that you've made it possible for us to be right with you. We thank you for our time together. I pray for the small groups. I pray that our time together would be edifying edifying to us and honoring to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.